Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody, Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. Oh, as always, a huge thank you to our fishy <laughs> friends from on, Radio Marinara <laughs> for the last hour of their aquatic awesomeness. Oh, on this most Melbourne of Sunday mornings, what, what is it about this wind? It's 18 degrees and I'm still cycling into a northerly. I don't know. Anyway, what better way to spend your time than to sit back and relax? Join us here for Radiotherapy on 3RRR 102.7. Um, we will be getting all summary later in the show when we talk to Radiotherapy regulars Prudence Deer and Rainbow Doc all about dogs and the beach. Both topics very dear to my heart. Both simple pleasures that can bring disproportionate levels of enjoyment and fun. Uh, But before that, we'll have a rather more sobering topic. Advanced care planning. Hmm. It's like making a will. We should all think about what medical care we'd like to have if we became seriously ill or incapacitated. (laughs) Just as many of us haven't, in my case, updated our wills, so most of us haven't organised our advanced care plans. Someone who knows all about this is Dr. Sonia Fullerton from Peter McCallum Research, uh, Peter Can- McCallum Cancer Centre, and we'll be talking to her and the results of her latest research uh, a little bit uh, later on in the show. But before we talk to her, first we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews. Head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I've got Panel Beater with me uh, talking about some news. How are you this morning, Panel Beater? I'm very well, Dr. Nick. How do you do? I'm extremely well. Despite, you, you know all about science and psychology and so on. Why is it I'm always cycling into the wind? Yeah, it's a conspiracy. I'm also getting myself into conspiracy theory. Seems like it's the thing to do in 2020. <laughs> and I reckon, I reckon there's a conspiracy against you for that ride. It certainly is working. Anyhow, let's, let's talk a little bit of news. And one thing that caught my eye, uh, and this might be of interest to you, is a headline um, which said for the first time there's a different type of drug in the top 10 most prescribed. Uh, now most of the top 10 most prescribed drugs are for the cardiovascular diseases. Um, I'm going to throw it to you panel Peter. What do you reckon the type of drug was that was in the top 10 for the first time? I reckon Dr Nick it's going to be and I'm thinking with my 2020 hat on and just general state of the World, I think it's going to be an SSRI. Oh, spot on. Well done, panel beater. Yeah, absolutely right. An SSRI, one of the antidepressant, anti-anxiety drugs. And the one that got in there is one called sertraline. Um, and the figures that were taken were taken up until June of this year. So they did cover the first part of the pandemic. Um, and we know that there was a significant rise in things like anxiety and mood disorder, which possibly explains why it suddenly popped in there. It's, it's nipped in at number nine on the charts. 
um, pushing out to number 10 a diabetes drug called metformin. Dr Nick, how many SSRIs are in the top 10? Uh, this is the only one at the moment, sertraline, so, uh, which in, in some ways I'm quite pleased about. One of my roles is sitting on the writing group for these drugs, and we've, funnily enough, we've just rewritten the book. Uh, so it's, <laughs> uh, we've been through the proofs. It's about to be published uh, early next year. Uh, but when we looked at which were the best drugs <clears throat> in terms of um, di- um, depression and anxiety, the SSRIs still come out as our preferred first line. And sertraline, um, which nipped into the top 10, closely followed just outside the top 10 by escitalopram, um, which <laughs> complicated words, but these are two of the antidepressant, anti-anxiety drugs, we think are still two of the best, though. So it's probably the right level of prescribing. Right, and, and prescription is um, number of tablets or number of scripts? So they use a measure which is defined daily doses, so they don't, don't go just by the number of prescriptions or tablets, but by what people we feel are actually taking. So it's a pretty good measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight out of the uh, <clears throat> eight out of ten otherwise are all the cardiovascular drugs, things like the statins for cholesterol and the blood pressure drugs, mm-hmm. which is probably appropriate since about 30% of all our deaths in Australia are due to cardiovascular disease. So good to have the medications trying to reduce that risk but uh, for the first time uh, an antidepressant that top 10 sounds like it tells a real story about uh, where we're at with our public health doesn't it well i think it's a, a reflection that at least to some extent doctors have got the message that a lot of cardiovascular disease is preventable and if we can th- keep things like blood pressure and cholesterol under control then we're going to help people and medications are an important part about that i of course as a gp would much rather see people do through lifestyle measures. Well, yes. Because <laughs> we know that if people can reduce their cholesterol and their blood pressure through th- things like diet and exercise, they are going to do much better than we've just filled them full of pills. Um, but, panel beat, I, I'm going to jump straight into a second piece of news because it ties in nicely with our guest who's going to be on with us in a minute. Um, and that's some very exciting news from Tasmania. Um, because uh, voluntary assisted dying, which is a topic very dear to my heart, um, was in the unusual situation in Tasmania and being produ- um, presented to the upper house through a private member's bill, which is not a route that's normally associated with great success. But the uh, Tasmanian Legislative Council voted unanimous- unanimously in the end for the bill. It's gone to the lower house and it's been voted into the committee stage uh, just last week um, by a majority of 18 to 7. So, yay, a round of applause. What do you think of that? I think it's great news. And, the, you know, the state dominoes are falling into place, New South Wales still being a bit recalcitrant. What's um, unique about this Tasmanian one? Is there any distinction to be made with any of the others that have uh, already gone through? So the, it was Mike Gaffney who was the politician who presented it as a private member's bill. The, his original version of the bill had some significant um, what we thought were advantages over and above the Victorian legislation. Uh, In order to get it through the upper house, several amendments were made to that bill, and now his bill actually looks very similar to what we have here in Victoria. So there are some compromises, as always is going to be the case in politics, but from our point of view, we'd much rather see people at their end of their lives having that choice, albeit with um, some severe restrictions. Have you been alert to any uh, uh, Tasmanian to Victorian travel for this very purpose while this legislation's been in play? Uh, You'd have to be really well planned because you've got to be 
Victorian resident for a minimum of 12 months. So you have to plan your dying well in advance if you (laughs) want to make use of the Victorian deal for that purpose, I'm afraid. I'm too busy to plan my dying. (laughs) If you've got more than 12 months to go, I hope you've got better better things to do than think about shifting over to Victoria. (laughs) And and, and that that time frame is obviously a deliberate attribute of the legislation to make sure that that kind of uh, travel is not taking place. Is that right? So the nature of this kind of legislation um, in Victoria and elsewhere where it's going through, like West Australia, uh, because it's state-based, they really want to make sure that people aren't doing this kind of health tourism or death tourism, if you like. Um, So the restriction is to people who are normally resident in a particular state. Hopefully, um, by the time it goes through in Tasmania and WA and looks as as though it may well get through in Queensland and South Australia, it'll become something that's pretty much uh, nationwide, which would be a huge cause for celebration. Yep. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk more about these sorts of matters um, because in a moment we're going to have Sonia Fullerton um, on the phone and um, she's from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and she's been doing some fascinating research about the use of what are called advanced care directives and if you don't know what they are, you should. So stay, stay listening because she'll be with us in a minute just after these messages. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. On the line now, we have Dr. Sonia Fullerton. Hi, Sonia. Good morning. How are you? I'm absolutely splendid, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Before we get into what we're talking about, tell us who you are. I am Sonia Fullerton. I am a palliative care doctor and I work at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And I've got an interest in social media in healthcare symptom management and end-of-life care and advanced care planning. And you mentioned that very last one, advanced care planning. Now, I know what that is, or at least I know a bit about it, (laughs) but there may be people listening who really have no idea. They may have heard the phrase but don't know what it means. So before we talk about your research, can you just explain to us what advanced care planning actually is? Sure. So when people become unwell, they often have a lot of medical decisions that they have to make, but sometimes they're so unwell that they can't they're not able to talk with the doctors or nurses about what treatments they want and what they don't want. So advanced care planning is actually really simple. Who would speak for you if you were too unwell to speak to your doctor? And what would that person say? So two bits. Who would speak for you and what would they say? The who would speak for you bit is commonly known as a medical power of attorney, but the new term for that under Victorian legislation is now medical treatment decision maker. And as for the what would they say, it's important to talk with your friends and family about your healthcare wishes and values. And if you like, you can put them in an advanced directive so it's formalised and on paper because what doctors always want to do is make sure that you get the treatments that you want and that you don't get the treatments that you don't want. 
I, I love the way you say that's what doctors always want, but the history of medicine hasn't necessarily included uh, doctors being um, that careful about what the patients wanted. They've often just gone down their own path and done what they thought was right for the patient. Um, one of the things I, I think is... I agree with you more. That's <laughs> right. No, we have been very paternalistic in the past, but things have really changed a lot. We want to give patients treatments that will benefit them, and we want to have the patient as a partner in that treatment. And one of the things I think has changed is under the Medical Treatment Act of 2018, your document that you write for your medical treatment decision-making and your advanced care plan is now binding on the doctors, isn't that right? That's correct. So there are two types of advanced directives that you can write on paper. Um, the one that I tend to focus more on is a values directive, and that's where the person talks about the treatments and the values for healthcare that are most important for them. So in my plan, it might be, for example, my cognition, my brain power is really important to me. And if I wasn't able to interact with my friends and family, I wouldn't want to have life-prolonging treatment. So that's a values directive. An instructional directive is much more specific and much more powerful. I don't want to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation or I refuse an intensive care admission. And those advanced directives are actually legally binding and they can't be overruled by your friends or your family or uh, a different doctor, they're binding on the doctor that's looking after you. And if we don't pay attention to those directives, it actually forms professional misconduct. I think this is an absolutely crucial point, Sonia said. It deserves underlining, I reckon, that we've gone from saying, oh, this is what we would like, to this is what we require you to do, and you are yes. by law required to follow that. Just to, out of interest, I haven't done a huge number of advanced care directives, but I've done some. Um, one of the things I've been struck by is that uh, under the values and the directives, almost everybody seems to write the same thing. In the, they, they all write that what matters to me is my brain, my capacity to communicate and be with family and friends. Uh, if, I if I don't have that, uh, then don't prolong things unnecessarily. Uh, I've been very struck. I've really never seen anything other than that written. Have you come across much variation in what people put in their advanced care plans? Yes, I have because I work in, a, in Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre and people come to us for very advanced, high-tech trials on cancer treatment and management. So many of the patients that we see say to us, I, I don't mind experiencing discomfort, I don't mind if I'm staying in hospital, I want to have this particular treatment. I understand it's only got a 5 or a 10% chance of working, but I would like to die in hospital, in ICU, with all of the machines that go ping. And I will then, I deeply respect that and will document that, but I will explain to them that we only offer treatments to patients that we are sure can benefit them. So if, for example, a 98-year-old with multiple organ failure um, kidney failure, liver failure and cancer that spread throughout their body says to me, I would like to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation and I would love to go to intensive care and I want to write that in my instructional directive. I will certainly document their wishes but I will let them know that we can't offer them treatments that we think will not benefit them. So if we know that the outcome of sending them to intensive care after cardiopulmonary resuscitation is going to be that they will have a painful and difficult death, then we are not obliged to offer them that treatment. Okay, so it can't require you to provide futile treatment, um, but, that seg but that segues very nicely to your research because this is something which you not only know about and talk about, but you also research. I don't know how you find the time to do all this stuff. Um, <laughs> so 
tell us what tell us what the um, outcome was of this recent research you've done. We wanted to ask people with cancer and carers of people from cancer what their experiences were with advanced care planning and what their preferences were for engaging in health professionals around these issues. The background for that is that patients can be sometimes reluctant to raise these issues with doctors because it can be a little confronting and sometimes they fear that if they talk about alternatives to ongoing active treatment that that treatment might not be available to them and that's not the case. But we also wanted to find out their preferences for who should talk about this with them and when. And the results, of course, are always fairly mixed. Some people would like to discuss that straight up at the initial diagnosis. Some people would prefer to discuss advanced care planning when their cancer spreads to other parts in their body. And a very tiny minority of patients don't really want to discuss it at all. And was there any sense that you had about whether there was a more appropriate way to do this, doing it early or later? What, what was the outcome from your point of view of what you would be recommending to people? It's very patient dependent. And the outcome of our research was that what I call the light touch approach, where we bring it up in a brief way at multiple points throughout the patient's treatment plan so that if the person is ready to talk about these issues and able to engage in that then they have the opportunity to. So some doctors feel as though they need to wait for the patient to raise advanced care planning with them but patients are sometimes waiting for the doctor to raise it with them and in fact it never happens and many many times I've been in the emergency department talking with the family of a patient who's who's crashingly unwell who likely has cancer but is unable to make medical decisions at that time and I talk about the possibilities for the treatments that we could offer and I look at the family and say you know what would Mr Jones have wanted and they look back at me in horror and say we've never talked about it we don't know and that's the situation that we're trying to avoid by bringing up advanced care planning at many points throughout the patient's illness. And I note that uh, in your research you, saw, you found that often it's carers and support people who tend to want to discuss advanced care planning earlier than the patients themselves. Um, yeah. So um, is there, a, is there a, a sort of right person you should be thinking about as your medical treatment decision maker? There is. The medical treatment decision maker should be someone who understands your wishes and values. They should be available to be able to talk to the medical staff about your wishes are. And they must understand that when a doctor is asking them about medical treatments, we aren't actually asking what the medical treatment decision maker wants to do. We're asking them what would the ill person want to do? What would they say if they were taking part in this conversation? And um, from your point of view, you, you work at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. This is something where a lot of people outside this kind of field would be saying, oh, you know, how can you possibly do that work? From, from your perspective, what's it like being someone who specialises in palliative care in this field? Um, my job is fantastic. I talk to many different people all day. I have many different um, types of patients and types of cancers. Um, that I see in my day-to-day -day practice and I see a spectrum of patients from those who are actively dying from their cancer and we provide end-of-life care for them but we also see patients who are uh, very early in their cancer diagnosis who might have very difficult to manage symptoms so it's, it's a very challenging but rewarding career.
And working in palliative care, um, my particular interest in voluntary assisted dying, which we talked about a bit earlier in the catch-up section, um, there's there's sometimes been seen as a schism between um, palliative care, which is uh, um, seen by some people in that speciality as distinct and separate and somehow incompatible with the concept of voluntary assisted dying. What's your view about that? Look, my view is very complicated, and I think anyone who says they have an easy answer to these issues is is not understanding them or lying. It's very complicated, but I always come back to what does the patient want for their treatment? What options for care can we give to that person? I would feel devastated if someone wanted to access voluntary assisted dying because their pain control was poor um, or because they weren't able to access um, appropriate palliative care services. But there are some things that are very difficult, that are impossible, in fact, for us to manage. We might be able to control your pain and your nausea, but can we manage the deterioration in your function, the loss of your social role, uh, your fears about what might come next? Those things are very difficult for us to manage. So I frequently talk about voluntary assisted dying with my patients and I ensure that they uh, are they fit the relevant criteria, and then I'll refer them on to our voluntary assisted dying navigators. You have just warmed my heart hugely, Sonia, because, of course, I'm, I believe very, very strongly that um, palliative care and voluntary assisted dying go hand in hand, uh, that everyone at the end of their lives needs and deserves good palliative care. But just as you say, palliative care is fantastic for things like pain and nausea and so on, but can't always help people with those loss of autonomy and the absolute uh, devastation people feel by their lives being ripped away from them by um, progressive disease and and then sometimes having the control at their end of their lives is what makes people feel much more comforted which is one area where voluntary assisted dying can help. So it's music to my ears to hear that coming from a palliative care physician. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I mean, we want so, people to feel in control of their treatment and what happens to them. So uh, I will do my very best to make sure that they understand their treatment decisions that they can make. They've put advanced care plans into place should they lose capacity so that we can ensure that their wishes are uh, known and adhered to. And I think that's one of the huge advantages of having an advanced care plan, isn't it? Exactly what you're saying. It allows you to remain in control, even if your mental faculties have changed and for some reason you can't make those decisions for yourself. You're in a position where someone can um, advocate for you, and that's what autonomy is all about. So I'm going to ask you the question Have you written your Excellent. advanced care plan yet? Oh, absolutely, I have, yes. <laughs> oh, you're so organised. I don't know how you do this. I mean, you work full-time, uh, you're doing your research, um, you must have no life at home at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, my house is a mess, it is true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sonia, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, let's uh, just To finish off, just remind people what they need to do in order to get an advanced care plan organised because this is something everybody listening should be doing even if they're in perfect health. So just remind us what we should be doing. That's exactly right. I would love for everyone to go and check out the Advanced Care Planning Australia website which is advancedcareplanning.org.au and Advanced Care Planning Australia offers free advanced care planning advice um, in business hours 1300 208 582. However, what you really need to do this Christmas is have a chat with your family and friends. Just think about my little sentence, who would make decisions for you if you were so unwell you couldn't talk to the doctors and what would they say? So pick that person, make sure they know what your wishes are 
And if you want to formalise those wishes in a written advance directive, get those forms from advancecareplanning.org.au and bring them along to your friendly neighbourhood doctor and have a chat with them about those forms. Absolutely perfect. Thank you, Sonia. What you need to do over your Christmas lunch is talk to your friends and relatives about what happens when you get sick and are about to die. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely right. Thank you very much. Um, Sonia, thank you for being with us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Sonia Fullerton from Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Absolutely fabulous stuff. And um, we'll talk more about that sort of thing um, in the new year, I am sure. Now, you left the eye fillet steaks on the bench. You popped upstairs for something. And when you came back, there's Pancho, your pet pooch, wolfing down the last remnants of your dinner. You yell at him and his expression is, what is it? Is that really guilt? Do dogs really look guilty? Well, (laughs) turning her gaze from her usual human subjects to the world of canine psychology will be radiotherapist regular Prudence Deer. And she'll be talking to us all about dogs and dog psychology. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the phone, we have Prudence, dear. Hi, Prudence. Hi, Dr. Nick. Oh, Prudence, how are you on this wonderful Sunday morning? Oh, I'm great. I know. We're getting towards the end of the year, isn't it? Holiday season's coming up. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> and we've been let out. We've been let out of our sort of uh, lockdowns and everything. It's starting to feel good. Well, all of us have been, well, all of us with dogs have been out walking the dogs anyway during lockdown. So one of a few yeah. things we were allowed to do, but you've been thinking all matters canine. Tell, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, look, I, well, you know, I mean, a number of things I think have been happening, but one is, you know, I've, I've got a dog, and you know, you know that dog, that joke, that joke, how can you tell if someone owns a dog? Oh, tell me, how can you tell? You can't. They will tell you. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, look, uh, I, I was just doing some, I was doing a bit of studying, online studying as well, because that's what we've been doing in lockdown, hasn't it? And I, I needed to improve my drug, dog management skills, really. Everyone's telling me that I have a very badly behaved dog, and I knew that that was because I'm a very bad bad owner, really. Um, and I thought, well, well, part of what I want to do is get a better understanding of my animal and, and what, what's going on in their in their heads. And there are some courses on kind of you know, the psychology of dogs. And it was absolutely fascinating because as a psychotherapist, I started to go, well, this is what happens in humans. You know, they've got brains not dissimilar from ours, really. And I'm sorry, you say there are courses on the psychology of dogs. For whom are these yeah. courses? Dog owners or psychologists or what? Well, there's a bit of both, I think. But some of them are for dog owners, you know, getting an understanding of the psychology of your dog and, and, and seeing it in that way, I think. And and we do, you know, there's this whole idea, this anthropomorphism, right, lovely big word, but where we project our own feelings and ideas, you know, the bit of humanity onto our animals and, and kind of interpret their behaviours on the basis of the, what we think we feel and therefore assume that our dogs are feeling the same things. And 
I guess, you know, that comes into things, important things like, like fear. But also, what about jealousy and love? I mean, I think many of us would like to think that our dogs love us. And I, I, I want to go up to the questions, well, do they? Does, so, that, does my dog love me or is it just simply I feed them? So, exactly. <laughs> so you've, you've named several jealousy, fear, love, guilt, yes. that sort of thing. Let's, let's go with the whole guilt idea when the, the dog's well, done something, whether it's had a little accident in the corner or it's, it has chewed your favourite pair of slippers and that wow. look on the canine's face is, seems, right. to one, seems to us one of abject guilt. Is it really? Yes, indeed. Well, that's right. Now, look, in you know, the earlier kind of research, and also I want to point out that any of the research I'm going to refer to is really quite ethical. You know, like no dogs were harmed in the in the sort of execution of those uh, experiments <laughs> and stuff. The dogs were volunteers, um, and so I'm quite pleased about that. So, but I mean, uh, yeah, there were behavioural studies with the earlier sorts of ones where they would do things like. Um, you know, put a dog in a room with a researcher and, and, and an owner, and the owner would put a treat or something on the table and make clear the rule was you can't touch the treat. And then the owner leaves the room. And then when the owner comes back again, the treat's not there. Now, a number of things could have happened. One is that the dog stole the treat, and sometimes they did. Um, another one might be that the researcher who was in the room actually just picked it up and stuck it in their pocket. Um, or the researcher actually gave it to the dog, you know, as a reward. Um, what they kind of found out from those sort of experiments were, though, that basically when the owner came back in the room and the treat was missing, like the dog would go into that kind of slump, you know, head down, not looking, tail between the legs sort of thing generally, which we attribute to guilt. But actually, you know, in some cases the dog wasn't guilty. You know, oh. They hadn't done anything wrong, but they still went into that guilt, what we would interpret as guilt. So most of those, I think the way that it was interpreted, well, we couldn't really tell if they were guilty or not, basically. And, and those signs, those behaviours that we're seeing are appeasements, right? They're ex- they know you are upset with them and, you know, they're trying to sort of like, oh, I'm in trouble, but they don't know what for. Oh, and that's okay. the so, important thing. So it's not that they anticipate, I know I've done something wrong, it's just that they know when an owner is cross and going to give them a hard time. That's- that seemed to be the test. But actually, there were some other experiments which they got a bit more complicated around some of that. And, it, you know, around the behavioural test. And, it, look, it wasn't really conclusive in the end. But there was a suggestion that when the dog actually had, you know, broken the rules, its kind of guilt reactions last, those what we assumed were guilt reactions, sort of lasted longer than, um, than, than otherwise. But one of the other parts of those sorts of tests, the behavioural tests, was that, that was also, can the owner tell if the dog actually, you know, transgressed the rule? And what they found generally was no. You, you didn't get it right. You know, oh, you okay. Say, so, oh, yes, I can tell by looking at my dog they've done something wrong. And it was actually, well, no, they didn't. So, so if, the, you, so if a researcher or someone took the treat rather than the dog and that was blinded yes. to the dog owner, the dog owner couldn't yep. tell whether it was the researcher or the dog. Oh, that, Correct. Well, in some way, I find that quite reassuring because, <laughs> as you say, we anthropomorphise our pets hugely. But, well, indeed. But I think some of, but some of it's valid, I think, as well, because, I mean, those were behavioural experiments. But then I found out that they've been doing 
some, you know, so they can do some other really interesting experiments um, where we can actually kind of draw some correlations between human psychology and, if you like, um, neurology and neurophysiology. Um, because, I mean, we know that areas of the brain are associated with emotions. And in, in more, you know, more recent sort of technologies around MRI, so the, the, the magnetic resonance imaging that many of us might have had, you go along to the, you know, next door to the hospital and they put you in this tube with this big machine. Well, they put and, you in a um, tube which makes terrifying noises. Are you really telling me they managed, they managed to get dogs to sit in an MRI well, machine? Actually, yes. What? Believe it or not. So um, a guy called uh, Gregory Byrne, um, you know, about 10 years ago, actually trained his own dog. He trained his dog using positive rewards and things, so no coercions, nothing else. And he did it in a simulation. He built a little box at home and everything. But he trained the dog to walk into the MRI <laughs> and rest its head on a platform at the, in, inside the MRI. And then it was trained to keep, when it was given a signal, it had to keep still for 30 seconds, which it did. My so, goodness, even even yeah. with that sort of thumping, hammering sound that's made by an MRI machine. Well, they also, they did also train, they, they put earmuffs on the dog. So the dog was trained <laughs> to wear earmuffs oh, and goodness. walk into the MRI. So it was completely voluntary. It was like the dog could walk out. They didn't restrain it. They didn't drug it. Uh, anything else, he was just, you know, he or she, well, he was called, Cali, it was called. Um, they, no, they walked into the to the MRI. And if he, you know, if he got fed up with it, he could just leave. Um, okay, so you've got a dog. So you've got a dog wearing earmuffs, strolling into an MRI machine, looking yep. as though they're a kid listening to their social media accounts on their yeah, smartphone. Exactly. The dog lies down, sticks its head on the pillow while an MRI is done. What did they find? What did they find? Well, they went looking, obviously, in certain places. Now, the thing about what you... There's a, there's a thing called a functional MRI. And um, as I understand it, what this can do, actually, is, is measure quite accurately, blood flows inside the brain and actually the levels of oxygenation as well. So we can tell what parts of the brain are active and they kind of light up. And we know from human studies that certain parts of the brain, if we, if we get sight of our romantic partner, for example, parts of our, co- parts of our brain, called, one of them called the caudate nucleus, sort of lights up. You know, this is an area... That, that kind of is, is associated with positive emotional kind of responses. And it's also actually related to, to memory and reward and things. Yep. All kinds of stuff, actually, that are quite important to dogs, if you think about it. It's certainly so, true that, yeah. that, that every time my wife walks into the room, my caudate nucleus lights up. Of course it does. And actually, <laughs> what we found is that your, your dog's caudate nucleus will light up when you walk into the room as well. And that's kind of what they found. Although... You know, depending on how you do the test, but if the dog was either given a signal that, that it was going to get a reward, an anticipatory reward, it's, it, it, you know, the activity of the coordinate nucleus increased, as did if, they, if you gave it the, the, the scent of its owner. So, like, we're kind of, you know, inferring from that. I mean, we don't really know, but there's kind of an implication, if you like. Well, if that's kind of the area of our brain, of my brain, that, that gets activated when I see my lover... And my dogs, you know, same part of their brain gets, you know, gets activated when they see me. I'm kind of reasonably inferred that perhaps dogs are capable of some emotion that's similar to love. That they some, do actually feel, you know. Yeah, there's something attached. slightly reassuring to know that my scent is as good as that of a liver treat. 
Well, yes, and probably better than someone else in the household. The dogs do discriminate. I mean, we know that scent's incredibly powerful for dogs, and they have a massive amount of ability to process that. So we can see these kind of very positive kind of, you know, emotional implications here. And I think something that we do know, again, from, from humans is that I, I found interesting was that it seems that some emotions, so like the, the, the ones like uh, excitement and distress and contentment, you know, are present very early in our development. You know, very, very young babies are capable of displaying, you know, emotions of, of contentment or distress. We know that. Um, it's not until perhaps later in life that we develop as humans the ability to think, to, to feel things like shame and pride and guilt. So if there is this kind of developmental hierarchy of of emotions, guilt something that comes much later. And the implication really is that our dogs aren't really as developed, you know, as an adult or as even, a, you know, it's probably around a two-year-old human kind of emotional development, in which case that also kind of points to the fact that they probably actually don't feel very guilty and they certainly, I don't think, feel contempt which I'm very pleased to hear about. <laughs> I, I certainly didn't notice any look of guilt on my dog's face when she stole all of the lamb chops, which she somehow managed to get hold of. <laughs> oh, well, the number of times we've all done that, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. of course, we understand that uh, um, dog psychology has at least some connection to human psychology because that's where Pavlov did all his work, wasn't well, it? It's around yes. conditioning and reward and response and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So we know that, you know, that, that those, those those elements of, of, you know, conditioning, in particular, yes, that that you know we we do both you know humans and and animals and dogs you know have these responses that we can trigger. So there are obviously quite a number of similarities, I think, in terms of our brains, and that was important because actually this researcher Gregory Byrne also concluded that you know that dogs are actually you know they are sentient feeling creatures with emotions that are very similar to our own, and actually around that sort of time, I mean, people have been taking a bit more of the idea that. You know, we talk about dog owners, but, you know, dogs are not possessions. You know, they are, they are living animals that really should be considered more a family member and that we are, we are rather more their guardians than their owners and so, they're responsible for their care and their well-being. So this, it's not news to any dog owner that our creatures are sentient beings that we need to look after. But having done all this research, Prudence, has it yes. changed what you're going to do with your mutt? And what is your mutt's name, yes. by the way? Oh, her name is Millie, and Millie? she's a cavoodle. She's tiny, mm-hmm. but she is she is the boss of the household, of course. Yes, it, well, what I've been learning, actually, yes. I mean, I think what, one of the things I've learned, she's a reactive dog. She sees other dogs, and she tends to go into attack mode. And that's been a bit, oh, that's a bit odd. Um, and what I've come, I think, to realise is it's fear. Okay. Um, something's happened in her past, I think, but I'm not quite sure what. But anyway, she it's fear. So I'm um, rather than getting you know like annoyed with her and going no, don't do that, and and pulling her back, I'm actually using distraction techniques and actually calming techniques for her. Okay, and, very um, important. It's starting to work because obviously, if fear is what's driving her behaviour, her owner getting yeah. cross is only magnifying that fear Absolutely. response. Absolutely. I yeah. did. I just want to finish. You did mention yeah. that she's the boss. Now a lot of people have this idea that there's a top dog kind of concept and that your dog shouldn't be the boss what do you reckon about that oh look come on well we're all equals (laughs) 
Oh, Prudence, thank you, thank you so much. It's fascinating to hear a bit about dog psychology. Um, but sometime next year on the show, I'll tell you about uh, how I developed a whole sleep program for babies based on research in a dog. But that's a matter. Oh. <laughs> that's a matter. Can't for, wait for next year. Yeah, lovely. that's a matter of another okay. time. Okay, thank you very much, great Prudence. Day. Have a great Christmas. Yeah, it's been lovely. You too. Bye for now. Bye, Prudence. Uh, in a, in a moment, we're going to keep that summer feeling going, and we're going to hit the beach with our other regular radiotherapist, Rainbow Doc, and she'll be right with us after these brief messages. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On the line now, we've got Rainbow Doc. Hi, Rainbow. Hello. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Um, morning, panel beater. Panel beaters lurking around, twiddling all Good the buttons. Morning, working. Rainbow Doc. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to respond. It's okay. No, no that was nice. That was very nice of you. He, he was probably searching underneath the studio desk for his uh, bucket and spade, dreaming about going down to the beach, which is what you've been thinking about, isn't it? Oh, I'm thinking about it. I've been thinking about it for a while, actually. (laughs) And I think, um, I imagine that you have too. Are you going to the beach this Christmas? Well, I've already snuck out for a few days. We had booked a few days down in summers uh, way back in June. That got bumped. It got bumped to September. Then it got bumped to November. So we did manage to get down to the beach. And actually, it made me wonder, what is it? Why is it so magical just to get out onto the sand and walk in that air and by the water? Why is that such a fabulous feeling? So hopefully you're going to tell me the answer. Well, there are many, many factors that contribute to this being a a magical experience. Um, One of them is, and and I don't think, if if you sit and think about it, I think it's all fairly obvious, even though there's people spending time, you know, researching this. I think we kind of know why the beach makes us feel like, you know, feel good. First of all, the waves, the gentle lapping of the waves. It's meditative, you know. We uh, we lie on the beach, or we walk along the beach, or we, you know, we and we hear that sound. It's exactly the same as if we were meditating and tuning into into our breath. Yes, there's not you for know, nothing that a lot of meditation apps use wave sounds. Exactly, and this calms the nervous system, so it makes us feel good. It makes us feel. It makes us feel calm. The other, the other piece about the sea is the, the colour, the blue, the, the blue of the sky. Often we go to the beach and we're more likely to go to the beach in the summer than other times of year, although, you know, beach in winter is fabulous. Um, but the colour blue is known to be um, calming. And there's been quite a lot of research on the impact of various different colours. Um, blue, for instance... Uh, shops that have blue interiors are reported by shoppers to be more more attractive and experience to be nicer when you're in a shop that has blue colours. Oh, yeah. I can check next time I'm in the supermarket whether they deck the entire place out in blue because they've read the research. Ah, and um, uh, advertisers will often use blue for for this purpose. I mean, that's what the research is for, to work out what colours advertisers should be using in their their ad campaigns. Um, 
There's some work done on the use of blue lights in Glasgow, also in Japan. They found by putting blue lights in the streets at night, the crime rates decreased. Oh, really? Yes. That's astonishing. So, so blue light, and I remember, you know, as we're around the end of year, Christmas time, people decorations, a few years ago there was all of a sudden um, heaps of blue tinsel and blue lights and blue baubles, and I wonder whether it was something to do with that research. Do you remember that, Dr Nick? So uh, it probably explains why I always get in so much trouble when I whack loads of green and red tinsel on the tree. (laughs) Maybe. Well, you know, red uh, incites anger, and, you know, red isn't a calming colour at all. Um, Which is perhaps why you don't find it on the beach that often. You don't find it on the beach that often. Um, so the, the colours at the beach are calming. Um, we go to the beach, we exercise, we naturally exercise. If we're walking along the beach, it actually requires more effort, you know, from your legs to walk, stand walk than it does to walk on a flat surface. So we get exercise um, by walking on the sand. We also go in the water and expend an awful lot of energy when we're in the water, navigating the waves or swimming, whatever we're doing. And, of course, that is good for our mental health. um, Yeah, so something we've talked about over and over again is the role of exercise in pretty much every aspect of health and very particularly in mental health. But let me ask you this one, Rainbow. One of the things I wondered is, is it as banal as when we were kids, we went down to the beach with families and it was a relaxed time and it was fun and ice cream and mucking around and having a good time is just wired into our brains from childhood. Is it as simple as that? Of course, there, there was that association. And um, the other thing, of course, when we're on the beach, we're not doing other things, are we? We're not doing the things that cause us stress. So we're not only adding the, you know, the impact of the water and the, the sand, you know, the sand on our feet, which is kind of like a, um, uh, has a grounding impact and, um, you know, works on our acupuncture points on, on the soles of our feet when, we, when we're in sand, you know, having the sand between our toes. Um, but our, our memories of children, if you, watch, um, if you watch a little child on the beach, um, I have a, a, a little person very close to me that I t- take to the beach and was just there the other week. Oh, what age with, is this um, little person? 20 months. Oh, sweet. So this little person uh, did not require any of my attention, really, apart from make sure that they were safe on the beach completely absorbed digging playing with the water i'm sure we've all seen this and and they learn so much by you know about um their spatial awareness that the sensory nature of the water and the sand they're just fascinated by the beach and i don't think we lose that if we engage with it yeah, I think it's great to get down on our knees and start digging in the sand and building sandcastles and watching the sand um, be moved by the water as the water comes in. And if you watch a little child on the beach, you know, it slows, it slows everything down because they are fascinated. It opens our eyes to how fascinating the beach is. It is completely wonderful, isn't it? I can just imagine your little person, 20 months old, with a bucket and spade, and 
I've watched kids doing this sort of thing and they're just spading water or sand into a bucket and then they tip it out and then they do it again. <laughs> over and over and over. And that is kind of meditative in the sense, in the same way, you know, the rhythm of the, the rhythm of the water coming in, lapping onto the, onto the sand. The other thing there's been some research into is the impact of the negative ions in the sea air. Oh, tell um, us about that. That, that they... Um, accelerate our ability to absorb oxygen. Of course, oxygen is very good for our brains and our bodies. It helps with our sleep. Uh, it has an impact on balancing serotonin levels and, and also strengthening the immune system. So the air and the salt in the air, of course, um, seawater is full of magnesium as well. Um, when you see footballers down on the beach in St Kilda after a Big tough weekends, or oh, we haven't seen it for a while, but um, big big weekends um, of football, standing in the water and absorbing the the salt water into their bodies to help with the recovery of their muscles. I thought they were just being punished for playing badly, so they had to go down midwinter and stand in the freezing cold water in St Kilda. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't <laughs> appeal, appeal to me in in winter. Um, <laughs> There's been some research in the UK, the University of Exeter, which is not too far from the beach, did some... Um, Exeter, I beg your pardon, I was born in Exeter. It's a very long oh, way from... Yes, yes. <laughs> yes well, um, tell me, tell me, it's in Devon, isn't it? Uh, no, Exeter is a county in its own right. It's uh, um, on the borders of London. Well, I stand corrected. Mm. Um but they did some re- research as to whether people who live near the coast have better mental health than those that, that live very much inland. And, and they found that for people with um, people in a low-income bracket, it had substantial benefits for their mental health. And it kind of makes sense because one of the greatest things about the beach is that it's free. Uh, it's yes. free entertainment. Uh, you have to get there, but once you're there, you know, a- anyone can go to the beach. So no class divide. And I just realised I'd said an absolute load of old rubbish, real Sunday morning thing. I wasn't born in Exeter, I was born in Essex. So I, I, I sit completely correcting myself there. My apologies, Rainbow. For... You were young at the time, Dr Dick. You can't be expected to remember. <laughs> yes, it... You can't remember, no association. Oh, my God, is that... <laughs> <laughs> you know, talking about the amazing benefits there are of going down to the beach, swimming, playing on the sand, also need to mention that there are hazards at the beach, you know, that we need to swing, swim between the flags, we need to cover up when we're out in the open under the sun, we need to um, be careful about what might be swimming in that water. Well, um, particularly here in Australia, as you say, um, drowning far too common. Yeah, yeah. So um, as, I'm, as I'm sort of advocating for beach, also say look after yourself at the beach and look after those around you. Thank you, Rainbow. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder um, and the beach culture of Australia, clearly good for us physically and for our mental health. Lovely to talk to you. You have a fabulous Christmas and we'll look forward to talking to you hopefully in studio in 2021. 
Let's hope so. <laughs> Thank Enjoy you. your Christmas and New Year, both Th- of you. Thanks, Rainbow. <laughs> um, that was Rainbow Doc talking all things wet and salty, just like the marinologists uh, did before us. And it's nearly time now to wrap up. Uh, just time to say thank you to our fabulous guest from earlier in the show, Dr. Sonia Fullerton. Um, so this is the last Dr. Nick show for 2020. I'd just like to say a particular thank you to our wonderful telephone panellists, Rainbow Doc, who you just heard, and Prudence Deer, who was on earlier, who've managed this whole COVID phoning in thingy with such a plomb. Um, also a huge thank you to Miss Diagnosis, who, because she's no longer a medical student but a junior doctor, had to work today, but who's also contributed regularly throughout the year. Uh, and finally, a massive thank you, Panel Beater. Thank you so much for all of your insightful contributions, <laughs> keeping this whole thing on the road uh, during this complicated time. Thank you, Dr. Nick, for a wonderful year. No, you've been magnificent, and uh, I'm so looking forward to getting everybody maskless and COVID-free in the studio in 2021. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can always check us out on Facebook. Listen to us anytime with Dribble R Radio On Demand, or you can download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.